Hello, and welcome to the Vetfolio podcast series, Purring Medicine, brought to you by Merck Animal Health. We're pleased to have you joining us as we explore the topic of ticks on cats with our guest speaker, Dr. Susan Little. Please note, the information provided in this program is provided solely for the purposes of informing you of current issues important to your practice. Any views or opinions expressed today are those of our presenter and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, or policies of Vetfolio. Let's take a moment to introduce our speaker today. Dr. Little is the Regent Professor and Cruel Ewing Chair in Veterinary Parasitology at the Center for Veterinary Health Sciences at Oklahoma State University. There, she is active in veterinary parasitology teaching and oversees a research program that focuses on zoonotic parasites and tick-borne diseases. Dr. Little is recognized as an international leader in parasitology and vector-borne diseases with an emphasis on One Health. And now, Dr. Little, over to you. Hi, this is Susan Little, and I'm really glad you're joining me today to go over a problem that I care deeply about, but one that many pet owners and even some veterinarians, depending on where they practice, may not even realize is a problem, namely ticks on cats. Now, those of us that live in areas with cytozoonosis, that severe, fatal tick-borne disease of cats, are very attuned to the threat that ticks pose to feline health. But there's also an alternate impression really a myth or a misperception out there that ticks don't feed on cats, that cats groom them off and so we don't need to worry about ticks on cats. We know from growing data documenting the extent of infestations of ticks on cats that ticks are actually a major problem for feline health. The myth isn't entirely misplaced. Cats are avid groomers and they do manage to remove some of the ticks. But we know grooming alone can't keep a cat flea-free and it definitely doesn't remove all of those firmly attached ticks either. So in this podcast, I will describe the most common tick species that infest cats in North America. There are three major ones. We'll go over some of the risk factors for feline tick infestation, things like lifestyle and seasonality. And I'll also share some strategies for controlling ticks on cats. And then in a follow-up podcast in this series, I'll provide information on the most important feline tick-borne diseases. First up, what ticks do we need to worry about in cats? Well, just like dogs, cats can be infested with a number of different tick species. The major ones of concern are the lone star tick, Amblyoma americanum, the deer tick or black-legged tick, Ixodes scapularis, and the American dog tick or wood tick, Dermacenter variabilis. And those are the, the really the three most important ticks on cats here in North America, but there are also other Ixodes species and Dermacenter species reported from cats in the United States, depending on where exactly the cat lives. And so we do get submissions of brown dog ticks, Ripocephalus sanguineus, when cats are around an infested premise or a home. We even see spinose ear ticks, Otobius magnini, that scary soft tick covered with spines that can lodge deep in the ear canal of cats and dogs. Now, spinose ear ticks are more commonly found on horses, but they are reported from cats and dogs that enter areas where the ticks are, are questing. But really, the big three ticks for cats are Amblyoma americanum, Ixodes species, especially that Ixodes scapularis, and Dermacenter species, especially Dermacenter variabilis. So we'll start with the southern U.S., which is where Lone Star ticks really reign supreme and have for many years. Although in recent decades, the geographic range of Lone Star ticks has dramatically expanded, and that tick's now found throughout the eastern two-thirds of the United States, and it appears poised to expand into southern Canada. And that's a problem for cats, because Lone Star ticks readily feed on cats. Surveys of free-roaming and pet cats 
show that Lone Star ticks are by far the most common tick recovered in the southern United States. Most of these ticks are adults, but a sizable minority of the ticks found on cats are nymphs. In fact, the immature Lone Star ticks, both larvae and nymphs, readily feed on cats, just as they feed on dogs, on horses, on people, and other animals. Cats acquire Lone Star ticks when they enter a wooded area where there's actively questing stages, seeking a host, and it doesn't have to be wilderness or even a rural environment, just an area with some brushy ground cover and understory enough to provide a bit of shelter to protect the ticks from desiccation. So cats that go outside, just outside around the home, are likely to pick up Lone Star ticks in the spring and early summer when the adults are questing. And then in the summer and early fall, when the immature stages are out, there's a long risk period for cats acquiring Lone Star tick infestation. Now in the northern U.S., especially the upper Midwestern states and the mid-Atlantic states on up into southern Canada, deer ticks or black-legged ticks are a larger concern. Those regions do have Lone Star ticks also, but high populations of the Ixodes scapularis tick, that's of major concern for canine and human health because of its role in transmission of the agent of Lyme disease, that tick is found in very high density in the Northeast and Upper Midwest. And those ticks, those deer ticks, also readily feed on cats. Right now, we're working with veterinarians in practice to identify ticks on cats. And we found that both immature and adult deer ticks are attached to cats coming into veterinary practices. Cats will pick up deer ticks from a similar environment as they pick up Lone Star ticks whenever they spend time in a wooded area outside the home. One difference with the deer ticks, though, is that the peak questing time when the adults are most actively looking for a host is actually in October and November, and then on through the cooler months, the winter months, into even January and February. The nymphs of the deer ticks are most active in the summer months. Our collection records from cats reflect the same pattern, where we get nymphs submitted from cats in the summer, and then the adult ticks will come in from cats in the fall and winter. So it isn't even just that cats are at risk of ticks, but they're at risk of acquiring ticks throughout the year, including in the fall and winter when owners may think ticks are no longer a major concern. And then, of course, cats on the West Coast also acquire Ixodes ticks, although there it's Ixodes pacificus and Ixodes spinopalpus because those are the ticks that are active west of the Rocky Mountain range. So just as Lone Star ticks have spread further north, the deer tick populations are expanding and actively questing ticks are now found in higher populations and a larger geographic distribution than was seen in previous decades, including higher elevation and more widespread latitudes. So depending on where you practice, it may well be that, you know, 20 years ago you didn't have to worry about ticks on cats. But now, because of the increased numbers and the increased distribution, you do. The third major tick of cats are dermacenter species, and by far the most common one is dermacenter variabilis, the American dog tick, because that tick has the broadest geographic distribution in the United States. We have dermacenter variabilis in the eastern two-thirds of North America, and then it's also found west of the Rockies in populations along the West Coast. We do see other dermacenter species like Rocky Mountain wood tick and Pacific Coast tick on cats depending on where they live, but dermacenter variabilis has the widest distribution. The habitat preference of dermacenter species is a bit different than Lone Star ticks or Deer's ticks, and in fact, it's more likely to be found in areas where there's tall grass or along trails and overgrown meadows. So if cats are able to contact those areas around the home in the spring and summer when the dermacenter ticks are out and active, an infestation is likely to result. Now, one behavioral tendency of cats that probably leads to more tick infestation is that cats that go outside often find themselves in an area where there are rodents. Immature stages of both deer ticks and American dog ticks 
feed on small rodents. That's their preferred host in nature. After feeding, they drop off to molt in the environment before they start to look for the next host. And because cats often gravitate to the same habitat as the rodents, they're likely to become infested. So the cat that goes into a brushy area or some taller grass looking for rodents and the ticks that have fed on the rodents and then dropped off and are now molted to the next stage are already there looking to feed as well and can attach to the cats. And so the food chain might just go up a little higher than we traditionally think. Just how common are tick infestations? on cats from surveys of free-roaming cats over the course of a year. About 18% of those examined had attached ticks, and as many as one-third were infested in a given month, depending on the time of year that the cats were examined. One problem in trying to do a study to figure out prevalence of ticks on cats is that in the extended two-year life cycle of a tick, so it takes two years from an egg-laying adult to the next generation of egg-laying adults for amblyoma, for ixodes, for dermacenter, and in that time, the tick itself only feeds on a host for a few days for an immature tick or a couple weeks at most for the adults. So if you add up all the feeding times for larvae, nymphs, for adult females, the ticks are on the host for maybe three weeks over that two-year life cycle. And in practice, a cat is examined at just one brief time point over the entire year. So even if we don't find ticks on the cats when they're examined, it's likely the ticks at some point found the cat over the past year, especially if that cat has access to the outdoors. So what can we do about it? Well, one obvious solution to ticks on cats is to keep the cats indoors. That way they don't contact the wooded or brushy areas or habitat with taller grass where the ticks might be likely to be found. And keeping cats indoors is recommended by groups like the Companion Animal Parasite Council and the Catalyst Council as one lifestyle change that can reduce feline risk of parasitism and disease. As the Catalyst Council says, you know, for optimum safety and health, cats are best supervised as indoor-only pets. And that's true for tick risk also. But we also know an indoor-only cat can be challenging for many owners to manage, and even with the best of intentions, many indoor cats will find their way outside from time to time. In that same ongoing study with veterinarians in practice, where we're looking at ticks on cats, we're asking that question. When cats have ticks, when the veterinarian or the technician finds the ticks attached to the physical exam, the owners are asked to estimate what percent of time that cat spends outside. And so far we found that about one in five cats who had attached ticks identified during a physical exam, about one in five of those cats were reported to spend less than 30% of their time outside. Another strategy that helps reduce the risk of ticks is managing the environment around the home. We can keep the grass trimmed, remove brush piles that serve as habitat for rodents, and really work to modify the habitat to try and allow sunlight in, to dry out the ticks and reduce the humidity that the ticks need to survive. All of that helps limit the numbers around the homes. But it may not be enough. Even for an indoor-only cat, ticks can be introduced into the home on the fur of an untreated dog or even on our clothing, clothing from humans. Brown dog ticks, Rhipocephalus sanguineus, can develop in-home infestations, and that puts cats at risk in their own home all the time. So ticks can be introduced to the home on the fur of an untreated dog or even on clothing from humans. Brown dog ticks, Rhipocephalus sanguineus, can develop in-home infestations, putting indoor-only cats at risk throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the year. Now, usually brown dog ticks prefer to feed on dogs, but when there's thousands or tens of thousands of them in a home, a few will attach to cats. And we've seen this reflected in the surveys. Brown dog ticks aren't the most common tick we find on cats, but they're consistently reported. Indoor-only cats can acquire ticks, and sure enough, when we parse the data from the ongoing study, we're seeing that a few of the cats with ticks 
were reported by their owners to be 100% indoors. If cats are likely to be at risk of ticks by virtue of the fact that they're cats, and certainly if they're at high risk because they go outside, then tick control for cats is definitely warranted. Now, unfortunately, our options for feline tick control have been fairly limited until recently. Really, for many years, Fipronil was the only long-acting monthly product with efficacy against all the tick species of concern in cats. Selamectin is labeled against Dermacenter variabilis in dogs, but not in cats, and not against lone star ticks or deer ticks in either dogs or cats in the United States. In the past few years, topical Edofenprox has become available as a monthly tick control product for cats, and long-acting eight-month collars containing flumethrin are available to protect most recently a topically applied but systemically absorbed formulation of Fluoroloner was approved by FDA for use in cats and is expected to be available later this year in 2016. And this is really good news for cats. It means that veterinarians will have more in our arsenal that we can use to combat ticks on cats. And we need that because ticks aren't just gross and they aren't just a hygiene issue. They're incredibly important vectors of disease. Ticks in and around the home create a health risk for people in that home and they create a veterinary health risk for the pet. With cats, we know that ticks can transmit pathogens that cause severe, potentially fatal diseases. We'll review tick-borne diseases of cats in the next podcast in this series, but one thing that they all have in common is the tick. So if we can protect cats from ticks, we've gone a long way towards protecting them from the infections that ticks transmit. If you'd like more information on ticks and cats and ways to manage feline health to protect cats from parasites and parasitic diseases, a great resource for veterinarians and technicians is capsivet.org. That's the web portal for the Companion Animal Parasite Council, and there you'll find detailed recommendations for veterinarians and technicians about ticks, fleas, intestinal parasites, heartworm, tapeworms, all the parasites that are likely to adopt a pet that we adopt into our home. CAPSI's goal is every pet tested and protected, and we're not there yet. But with more options for parasite controlling cats, we are hopefully getting closer all the time. There's a companion site, petsandparasites.org, and that one's written for pet owners to try and help them better understand the need for parasite control in pet cats. We can refer pet owners to that site, petsandparasites.org, to help them understand really the basis for the recommendations that is coming from the veterinarian and why the veterinarian's making that recommendation for parasite control. So thanks for listening, everyone. I hope it was helpful and that you have a chance to join me in the next podcast, which will focus on tick-borne diseases in cats. And with that, we must conclude today's Vetfolio podcast on ticks on cats. We hope that you enjoyed this first in our four-part series. On behalf of Vetfolio and Merck Animal Health, thank you for participating in today's podcast. 